Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Shop, and joining me today, I got Evan Roosh. Merry Christmas. I always forget. <laughs> well, it says the week of Christmas. So. We've been doing this for a year. I'm always just hoodwinked the, the whenever you your confusion me. on your face when I say your name. I'm always bamboozled. Like The pause before you <laughs> went was very... I loved witnessing that moment. <laughs> And that other voice you heard is Ana Martinez-Ortiz. Hey. She is a good friend of the podcast, so we are glad to have her today. Yeah, excited to be here. Heck bit yeah. nervous, but excited. That is how it goes. Yeah. But we have- well, a- You just saw me, been doing it for a year, and I was absolutely <laughs> shell- shook. Shell-shocked. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, is that is that my name? Right. Like, <laughs> how are you two doing today? Doing just lovely. Just uh, very excited for the holiday season coming up. Very excited for Christmas Eve. That's when my family really does like our celebrations. Yeah. Like we typically don't do too much on Christmas, but Christmas Eve is kind of our time to shine. And apparently we're starting at like noon. So so it's going to be an early Christmas Eve. It's going to be a rough Christmas day. What <laughs> <laughs> are the rushes? That'll happen. But you get gifts. So that's exciting. Honestly, I don't think I get too many. It's all about the nieces and nephews yeah. now at this point. Like Cyber Monday, I went so hard. The gifts are in the fridge for you. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anna, how are you doing? Yeah, good. It's been a busy week with yeah. work. And I don't think I expected how much work research is for this thing. Yeah. <laughs> so like, props to you guys because I was like, oh my gosh, this is... So much, and I feel like I had so much more I could have researched, and I was like, no, we have to work. We have to get paid. <laughs> this is probably the most research that I've done for an episode so far, I'd say. Yeah, eight pages. That's uh, yeah, that's that's definitely a record. I think that ties for when we did uh, the Men in Black series, but that was just one book that I read. Like This was mm. a bunch of different stuff that I had to go through. So. Right. But yeah. Uh, yeah, mentioning all of our notes, we are going to be talking about Project MK Ultra today. Which Spooky. it's a pretty wild story, and there's a lot of twists and turns for a story that we know relatively little about, honestly, <laughs> because most of the information was purposefully destroyed. So, but we, I think we got a lot of good information from uh, books, online sources, and even an interview that Anna and I did with one of the authors of one of the main sources on this topic. So, think it should be a fun time yeah the first ever gems of history interview yeah so yeah you're welcome for that, that. <laughs> she set it all up so <laughs> okay but like jacob, oh thank you it's on yeah. it <laughs> well because jacob was like you should email this guy and i was like you don't want to no no well, you go she's ahead. a journalist so she's the one that sets up interviews not yeah me. oh and gotcha, it worked the right. guy yeah. responding he's like i'm down when are you available and yeah yeah we set it up pretty quick i think it was like a saturday that or Friday, and then we yeah. interviewed him on Monday. So, look at us. It was our second try, though. <laughs> we tried a different guy, and he was like, "Just read my book." Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah he was great. Alfred was like, um, "One, read my book, and two, I've written a lot of other books. If you want to talk about those, I was like, I do not. But this thank is you. the one that I want to talk about." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, sources that I mainly used were uh, NPR had a few good articles on the topic. A website called McGill Daily. Uh, New York Times has a lot of online articles that they've digitized from like the 70s and 80s. So I used a couple of those. The New Yorker I used for a section of my notes. And then 
and that interview with the author whose name is Stephen Kinzer. He wrote a book called Poisoner in Chief that's all about Sidney Gottlieb, who is pretty much the architect of MK Ultra. So he's got a lot of good stuff that he's researched throughout the years. And then there's also a docu-series on Netflix called Wormwood, which focuses on one section of the MK Ultra story, which we will get into later. So Lots of different Wowza. stuff. Wowza. Yeah, I know. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff. And, and that was the first page of Jacob's notes. <laughs> uh, I feel like I have a lot of the like similar sources to you, except for I watched history.com, had some okay. like, videos and stuff, and I watched a YouTube video. Yeah, this is the first one that I like didn't really watch YouTube videos for, because normally I'll watch like at least one or two, but this one I just like dove really hard into the articles because each one led to a different article basically so it's yeah there's a lot right like just for my own research and other topics i just pound youtube videos how do we not have a video i know seriously uh my uh sources were history.com a website called tripsitter.com and then a documentary by the fifth estate I saw that one on YouTube and I was going to watch it, but I never did. The funniest thing was, I guess we can talk about it later, but they tried to show a video of like what it was like being on LSD. <laughs> and this this documentary was made like in the 80s. <laughs> and so it was just the most 80s thing you've ever seen. I very much recommend So it's like, just like a it bunch up. of bright colors. And oh, yeah. Bright colors. A lot of fizz. A good trip. Evidently. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tie-dye colors abound. Yep. Well, shall we get into it right away? We got a lot to talk about, so I think, yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be best if we just started on our own, on our way through this. Let's do it. All right. The secret Central Intelligence Agency program, titled MK Ultra, had the lofty goal of searching for a way to control the mind. The ways in which this program went about finding the method for mind control was mainly through the use of drugs such as LSD. Running throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s, the project ended up dosing hundreds, if not thousands, of people, many of whom probably had no idea that they were a subject in some government game. What has now been dubbed as one of the most nefarious undertakings by the CIA was a massive job, but ironically one that we still know relatively little about. Through careful covering of tracks, as well as superhuman willingness to look the other way, the project didn't really come to light in any fulfilled form until the waning years of the 20th century. The people involved never really face justice, and those affected may never be able to live a normal life if they survive the testing at all. Most important questions with MK Ultra, which we aim to answer, are how did this happen? Why was it deemed necessary? And was it worth it? So let's find out. <laughs> let's let's. Begin. <laughs> <laughs> start. So there's a lot of background factors that kind of led to this project. And most of it revolved around chemical weapons. And after World War I and its introduction of new chemical weapons, the military kind of decided that it needed to find ways to protect its soldiers on the battlefield. So one way that they did that was in 1941, FDR appointed a pharmacologist named Alfred Richards to organize the research on wartime projects. A year later, he requested human subjects. And you may be asking, who'd they use? Well, they used our own soldiers, so that's fun. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to add something, too, is that the Geneva Protocol was in place at this point, and that was the idea that it prohibited the use of chemical and biological weapons in war. So the fact that 
everyone kind of disregarded this. Yeah. I don't think the U.S. signed it. Japan didn't sign it. So that's just something to keep in mind that, like, right, they can't not research it, but they can't use it as the idea. So, mm. yeah, there's a lot of things put in place so that we kind of would avoid another world war like the one we had originally. And then people were just like, maybe not. <laughs> and then people were like, let's run it back. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> two up, that's two out of three. Germany was like, we can do it again, can't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll do it again. Swear, swear to God, we'll do it again. Oh, <laughs> Double dog dare me. Yeah. <laughs> so they used our soldiers for some of this testing. And throughout the next couple of decades, these men would be asked for some instances to, quote unquote, test summer clothing or volunteer for a special program in exchange for extra leave time. But what these people didn't know is that they're going to be subjected to various chemical testing with no way of refusal. And a lot of the reason behind not being able to refuse was the fact that you're being told as a army grunt by your superiors that this is what you have to do. And when you're in boot camp, you're kind of drilled to say yes. So, and I mean, you already signed a waiver saying you'd do it earlier on, even if it was a false waiver, but kind of had no way out. That's not the whole story, the story of what happened at Edgewood Army Base. Uh, that's kind of all for another episode, because there's a lot that went into that, and that's where the New Yorker articles came in, and there's plenty of material in those to do an entire episode on its own. It's also very messed up. So. It is. So, And that's testing like deadly chemicals, not even just like LSD and stuff like that. Like They were testing sarin gas, which is l highly lethal, yeah. like... They were putting that on people's skin. Yeah. Like they were like, come oh, to wow. this room. They put a gas mask on them and then would put like drops of sarin on their skin. One guy talked about it and he's like, yeah, I was hyperventilating. I never knew what it felt like to not breathe. And then he walked out of there and he's like, it was a beautiful day and I nearly died, but it was a beautiful day. And I just had to like reconcile those mm -hmm. two things. And it was just like, yep, okay, you're done. How do you just like bury that in your subconscious? Sure. Like. Well, not going to be able to talk about this ever. Well, so yeah. many of the soldiers were like, I can barely sleep. Like, mm. I threw my wife through a wall the other day because I disassociated so hard. Like, it's bad. Like, they fucked a lot of people up. That sounds like another Jacob topic that will make me very sad. Yeah. <laughs> it will. I learned about it via Jacob. I was like, this is so depressing. Just in time for Christmas. Awesome. <laughs> More of the government being fun. Yeah, mm. right. So around the same time as the Ed Edgewood project, the U.S. military also began running tests on a new project, which we would have the original, or which would have the original title of Project Bluebird. So Project Bluebird was headed by a man named Ira Baldwin from none other than our own University of Wisconsin. And Ooh. the amount of times that Wisconsin somehow pops up in the story is kind of insane. <laughs> like. There's at least four people that come out of the story from Wisconsin. Yeah, it was kind of Ooh. a moment of pride to be like, Wisconsin, <laughs> yeah. but also, eh. Yeah. <laughs> Go Badgers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Ira Baldwin was requested by the government to begin work on a bioweapons program in an effort to find new offensive methods to be used in the Second World War. So one specific instance of this was a shipment of tons of anthrax spores, which Winston Churchill planned to use against the Nazis. And that's one thing that's specific with this program as well, is that it was a joint operation between the British, the Americans, and the Canadians. So it was kind of a united front to try and find a new way to use these bioweapons. Mm -hmm. So as we said earlier, not many people really listen to those Geneva laws. Yeah, not at all. And also, Baldwin has an interesting story of how he got recruited was they posed this question to scientists because 
Britain was fearing um, a bio attack from Germany. And they're like, hey, if we want to retaliate, could we do it? And all these scientists were like, no, because you have to have this, 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 this. And Baldwin is like, well, actually, if you can hold germs in a test tube, you can make a giant test tube, essentially, and attack people. And they're like, cool, you're our man. (laughs) Come work for us in Washington. And he was like, yeah, patriotism, like, I'm there. (laughs) Just the worst ever well, actually, of all (laughs) Have you guys thought about, like, crap? He just goes and grabs a cart and wheels in this massive test tube, like, use this. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I already have one right now. And you just see germs bouncing, like, inside I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) The war ended before these spores were ever delivered. However, the end of the war did not stop the experiments. In fact, the war itself broke any previous notions that we should hesitate on using bioweapons and actually encouraged officials to do whatever it took to gain the upper hand. And this became doubly important once the Cold War began and the U.S. attempted to do whatever it had to in order to stay ahead of the Soviets, including hiring our old enemies. So, during a project known as Operation Paperclip, former Nazi scientists and doctors were exonerated and brought to the U.S. and hired in order to help us advance our medical and technological standing. So, part of this would include using the research that Nazi scientists had began in concentration camps and applying it further to see if, in addition to bioweapons, we could use it for mind control. Yeah. So... We're hiring good old Nazi doctors that experimented on concentration camp prisoners. And that wasn't even the, not to <laughs> cut you off. No, I, I didn't. But like Operation Paperclip, the idea was to be like, we're going to go through and as long as they're not associated with like the Nazi party, they can come. But then they started whitewashing, so to speak, and like cleaning the records. They're like, you can come. You were a doctor <laughs> at the Nazi camps. Great. Come on over. And it's insane that they were just like, yeah. This is like fine because they have so much information and we want it. And it's just like there was one in the book Poisoner in Chief. They have a there's a bit about um one of the scientists, an American scientist, is just sitting in a room with a Nazi scientist, and he's like, and he was so nice and we had a great conversation. You're like, this guy was doing horrible things, and wow. it's okay because now we want to use their research. It's so. like before they brought him over there. Like our whoever made the decision was like, well, how Nazi are like are they just <laughs> on a like, scale of one to ten? Yeah, where are, are you at, Nazi? Are they like Nazi or are they like Nazi Nazi? <laughs> you know? Do you like or do you like like him? Yeah, right. <laughs> you, that's very interesting. And then, like with the Nuremberg trials, I'm sure a bunch of those doctors were actually part of those trials and convicted. And at yep. those at the Nuremberg trials, that's where like the the official international guidelines were set up to protect people from scientists. Mm, And the quote in the documentary that I watched was, uh, research must now be completely safe and subjects must give full consent. And they just had their (laughs) fingers crossed. And they were like, no, no, no. We were were lying. Okay, well, Kurt Blum, I think that's his name, was one of the scientists, and they were really pushing him to be part of Operation Paperclip. And they say, like, during the trial, they're like, Oh, he conveniently, he was like, yeah, I was given these orders, but like, there's no proof that I followed through on them. And so the judges were like, okay. And there was pressure from the U.S. government to kind of pardon him. And yeah, so he gets acquitted. Some of them get hanged. And I think the rest went to prison then. But yeah, it's insane because by all means, he should have probably been executed. And they were like, but we want his research. Right. This just shows how desperate we were, though, to beat the Russians, like, especially in the space race. Like, that was a huge reason why we brought a lot of these guys over was so that they could help us get to the moon. <laughs> but, like, 
they're pretty much the main reason why we did get there before the Russians because they helped us out so much. But I just don't don't see how they made that leap in justification that they're like, get to the moon, hire Nazis. Yeah, they they balance. <laughs> yeah, we definitely uh, blot that part out in American history yeah. that we just kind of hired Nazis for a sec. Once again, another topic that we could do a whole episode on. Mm-hmm. Worst employees of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's you think again yeah right <laughs> so a lot of why we brought over these guys to help with mind control was kind of stirred by um, the trial of a hungarian catholic official named Josef minzenzi i believe is how you pronounce it that's how i went with it so Minzenzi was a man who was unhappy with the current situation in hungary due to the oppressive communist government because the new regime stifled political opposition as well as religious freedom and so he publicly was crying for a change and in retaliation the hungarian government arrested him and a bunch of others and began what would become come to be known as show trials which basically are a trial to prove a larger point by showing a use of force to the public basically so it was said that in his trial, he confessed to crimes he hadn't committed. He was talking in a monotone voice. And all the while, he looked as though his eyes were glazed over. And he was kind of just a shell of who he once was. And so this led the U.S. to believe that someone had obtained the ability to control his actions from a distance through some sort of mind control. And this was the main push for why Project Bluebird officially took flight in 1950. So that's how everything kind of started and there's way more that goes into that but that's a boiled down version of events so in the beginning of the program a lot of the focus was centered around new techniques of behavior control through the use of different sensory deprivation hypnosis and electroshock so these original tests were overseen by a higher up in the cia named alan dulles who would eventually become deputy director of the cia but when the tests were not giving the results he wanted, Dulles passed the buck over to the titular figure in MKUltra. The man Stephen Kinzer would later dub Poisoner-in-Chief, a man named Sidney Gottlieb. Um, a remark on Alan. <laughs> this is a direct quote from Poisoner-in-Chief. Although Dulles was in many ways unlimited thinker, he liked to imagine himself on the cutting edge of espionage. Which that just made me laugh when I heard that <laughs> this guy is like, he's like, I'm so great. I have all these ideas. And it's like, no. Nah. Secret, yeah, like you're not that slick. (laughs) (laughs) He just thinks he's the best. He He starts every single meeting with like hiding somewhere in his office, like try to find me. He's doing like the Pink Panther creep, like (laughs) one step at a time. (laughs) Oh my gosh! So one example of early tests occurred in Canada at an institution known as Allen Memorial. It began with a man named Donald Hebb, who was a doctor of psychology at McGill University, which is associated to Allen Memorial Institute. So Dr. Hebb attended a meeting at a Ritz-Carlton hotel on June 1st, 1951, to discuss a joint American-British-Canadian effort led by the CIA to study sensory deprivation. So McGill received a $10,000 grant for the study. Uh, Hebb paid a group of his own psychology students to be isolated and deprived of all their senses for an entire day. And now, when I say that, he was being conscious of the fact that they were his students. He wasn't just throwing them in a room and saying, good luck. He was actually like watching over them and monitoring them to make sure that everything was okay. And you said he paid them, right? Yeah, so, so. He, was, he was paying them. So he, they knew that what they were doing, like these were people that were getting paid to do a job for him. Yeah. 
And you have to imagine there was like, if you need to tap out, there was exactly. a signal or something. I've, right. Because as far as I could tell, this guy didn't do anything super nefarious. He was just kind of using his resources to test something that he thought was useful. So only thing I'll say, just think about my college experience and how broke I was, I probably would have done pretty much anything yeah, right. for some cash. Well, like you would see ads all over campus. Like, oh, right. We'll give you like 50 bucks, 100 bucks, mm-hmm. come spend the day doing whatever. I didn't do it. It always looks sketch, but <laughs> I did one like concussion study back in the day. It's so they like just hit you on the head a bunch. <laughs> right? yeah, I was like, did you have to have a concussion going in? No, I was always the test, like the what do they call it in test? Oh my gosh, uh, not the one that had the concussion, but the the control group. Control. Thank you. Yeah, that was me. But hindsight, that could have been a lot worse. Like, yeah, what if they would have just like hit me with their car. <laughs> just take a metal bat to your head. Right. Like, <laughs> what did you do though? Like, is it just? Like, they just ask you questions? So I got paid, I think it was, like, $1,200. And I just had to do, like, simple math problems. And I had to get a CAT scan. (laughs) And I had to do, like, four times. And, yeah, it was pretty awesome. I would take $1,200 to do that, honestly. It was also at the convenient time where I got my first underage or got an underage. So kind of need the cash. So I was like, (laughs) yes, I will participate. Let me fill out this, like, mad minute. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. So, as I said, he paid a group of his own students and deprived them of all their senses for an entire day to determine a link between a mind becoming vulnerable due to being deprived of all senses. So, at the same time, Dr. Hebb also played low volume recordings of anti scientific sentiments to see if his students would react. And to his surprise, the students were open to ideas that they had thoroughly rejected before. Because these are psychology students, these are rational thinking people. They're not really like religious types most of the time but he started playing like anti-scientific as well as religious things and he found like they would say i'm open to it if after that so so that just shows how much this can affect your thinking like how much this can affect your mental state in just a day and this is where flat earth theory was born (laughs) right (laughs) i was like and cults this is a great idea for cults (laughs) yes So as another UW-Madison professor, history professor, Alfred McCoy, put it, quote, the subject's very identity had begun to disintegrate, end quote. But despite these tests, Dr. Hebb was never viewed in negative light or seemed to overstep his bounds, and he was even nominated for a Nobel Prize seven years after his research was published. Like I said, this guy was doing, like, thorough actual work. But his research kind of laid the blueprint for what the CIA would later attempt in their interrogations and psychological torture. MKUltra Subproject 68, which was what started at McGill University, would be one of over 100 different subprojects to come out over the next 10 years, 10 plus years. Alan Dulles went from a higher up in the CIA to becoming deputy director, as I mentioned earlier, three days after handing off Project Bluebird, now known as Project Artichoke, to Sidney Gottlieb. Oh, the Artichoke. Sorry, we have to talk about that. (laughs) Did they just run out of names? No, no. It's okay. I have to, like, find this because it's insane. Um, The name came from, like, Dulles was like, oh, it's my favorite vegetable. But then researchers, yeah, that was my, I was like, no one likes the artichoke. Out of all, yeah. We have so many different names of projects in this that are so funny to me. Oh, yeah, but they all have, like, some of the reasoning behind them. Like, paperclip is because they use the paperclips to mark, like, certain files. So, okay, you Mm -hmm. know, clever, I guess. Artichoke, he claims it's after his favorite vegetable, but researchers suspected it was after um, the Artichoke King, who was a murderous gangster in New York. 
Oh. So I'm leaning towards that, that one <laughs> and not his favorite vegetable. I'm more just, con- like walk around with like a giant artichoke hat and just stink up everywhere while <laughs> and just clear out a room. That's why I was wondering, like, how did this gangster chase get like, <laughs> yeah, that, right. that's his nickname? I did not look into that because I was just like, what? He just f- had artichoke farts all the time. Like, I don't Just cleared out the city of <laughs> New guess. York. That's how he became a notorious mobster. Right. Note to self, look this up. Yeah. <laughs> so it was at this point that Gottlieb received free reign to do whatever he pleased with virtually no oversight. The higher-ups took on the role of the ignorant bosses and told Gottlieb to pretty much keep them out of it. As Stephen Kinzer said in our interview with him, quote, it was precisely to insulate others from knowledge in the CIA culture. Ignorance is sometimes an asset, end quote. Which is very true in this in this scenario. That ignorance is huge. So once Gottlieb tossed off the shackles of supervision, he really began to try anything and everything in order to advance the CIA's understanding of controlling the human mind. He and his associates felt that it was necessary for the United States to keep up with the Soviets, who were believed to have already achieved mind control. And Cold War hysteria justified the coming torture in his head and a lot of other people's heads. To Gottlieb, mind control was entirely real, and we needed to figure it out to keep up. And I just don't think I can like comprehend the hysteria that was in everyone, even like the public's mind during the Cold War, because I've never, we've never experienced something like that in our lifetime, really. Like as far as a foreign yeah. war that could destroy the country, like I mean, obviously we've had scares, but nothing like a multiple decade. Con, like controversy mm-hmm. so yeah. especially just with like a singular opponent so well and you have to think too at the time that not that there was limited information but there was limited sources of information so like people probably right now say that we have too many like media companies and so you can get your information from multiple places so some source might be saying something like one way but another one's like actually no but back then it was like you turned on the tv and yeah. what they told you, or you read the paper, and they were all saying the same thing. And so, you well, know, it's like a mob mentality almost. And right. It's mo- it's so much more of like a boots on the ground type thing, too, because it's like there could be a spy living next door to you and you wouldn't know it. So you're suspecting almost everyone you meet. Like, is this a person that's spying on me for the KGB? Or like, I can't imagine like that level of paranoia living yeah. my daily life, you know? Well, and this is a whole other topic. But like, really? there's this. We, we haven't had yeah, any of those yet. <laughs> Are we about to talk about space now? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're about to talk about Cuba. Uh, but with the Wasp Network, which is this whole thing that is like fascinating, they had Cubans who like defected from Cuba and then would come and live among Americans, but were gathering information to send it back to Cuba, and so you didn't know. And so like these people, like one guy marries some woman has kids with her this whole thing and then it's like oh like got on a plane one day went back to cuba and was like yep like been feeding them information and so they really like not to be like they lived among us but in some sense like you didn't know who you could trust and so like that fear is very real to them yeah yeah that's insane just the paranoia part of it i mean it kind of reminds me of the salem witch trial episode that we did like you just accused your neighbor of being a witch this is obviously course very different but kind of the same concept like john next door is acting a little sus yeah gotta be a soviet spy just like so i'm talking to his hand the other day right i think he's just nuts (laughs) (laughs) but um just to kind of go over the 
what Americans were feeling. There were actually a couple newspaper headlines that talked about, that literally read, the new evil seen in brainwashing. Then another one that was brainwashing versus Western psychiatry. So basically just talking about different supposed mind control techniques that Soviets and just China is like everyone that was involved in communism was trying to do. Um, there were also books, uh, fictional books, uh, named The Manchurian Candidate, okay. as well as The Naked Lunch, that basically talked about the same themes of scientists testing and brainwashing different... I believe one in The Manchurian Candidate is actually a prisoner, of, a former prisoner of war that comes back and kills someone, uh, elected official. I haven't seen the movie or read the book. <laughs> so that's kind of my uh, spark notes of it. But at the time, there was just this paranoia going on, uh, even affecting media sources. Yeah, and in our interview with Stephen Kinzer, he mentioned that towards the end that he thinks media at the time played a huge part in like fueling this paranoia, especially from the CIA, thinking like we need to figure this out if this is real. Like, so it's kind of a like these things play a huge part, whether we think it's just a fun book or not. Like, you know. Yeah, and I guess the CIA had a. Uh... Uh, someone I wouldn't call him a journalist but I guess technically he was and he was kind of pumping out all this propaganda and the CIA who like hired him kind of bought into it <laughs> you're just like wait what <laughs> so um they very much like I think fed into the public's fear yeah which is also kind of funny because it's like oh you're the intelligence agency you right. clearly know things that the rest of the public doesn't know and yet like I mean, they're hiring hypnotists to, like, go hypnotize people, and then they're like, we're getting results. <laughs> Which is, like, to be fair, hypnotic regression and stuff like that, like, it is helpful for a lot of things, but I just don't think in this scenario they're using it for anything worthwhile, but right. I don't know. So, um, Just one more point about just the American public. That's actually just the idea of brainwashing and brain control. That was actually one of the reasons that the american public actually thought that the people under communist rule like accepted communism because it's just such a anti quote-unquote anti-american belief or that's how it was pitched back in these times that that was the only justification for these people under communist governments to accept communism hmm. and so that's just one of the things i got from my history.com source that's the only reason why communism is a thing is because they're all brainwashed. And I'm which, sure they were probably saying the same thing about capitalism. Which, when you think about it, is such like a nationalistic thought. Like right. it's such a hive yeah. mind thought too, where like everyone in a certain nation is so dead set on how they're doing things that they're like, anyone else doing it must just be under some sort of spell. Right. Like it's got to be some sort of magic. Yeah. So. Not to call it, this is going to be weird, but it's like the missionary approach where people would go on missions to be like, come join Christianity because you, like, people are ignorant. And it's like, no, like, maybe they, <laughs> they don't want to join Christianity or they don't want to support capitalism. Like, everyone has free will. <laughs> free will. So. Right. It's like we have our religions and our, uh, economic standards yeah we're, we're all right yeah this reminds <laughs> thank me you our, but no thank you it reminds yeah. me of our last episode when uh saladin gave i think his name was reynald the option to live if right. he converted to islam and mm -hmm. he's just like no you need to convert because i'm right and you're like right. gonna die and go to hell he's just like all right i guess i'll just kill you yeah <laughs> so it's, it's like you could right, say that he there. lost his head oh my god and that argument <laughs> 
So a lot of this testing to understand how to control the human mind started with the testing of our barbiturates such as sodium amytal, which is a crystal, white crystalline powder with no odor and a slightly bitter taste. And according to a report listed in a joint Senate hearing in 1977, many of the tests were done on multiple individuals in order to, to squeeze a confession out of them through the use of these so-called truth drugs. But first, I want to list some of the fun nicknames that the report gave to the barbiturates, such as goofballs, red devils, yellow jackets, and pink ladies. <laughs> <laughs> They're so funny. I, I loved that part. I was like... This isn't an actual Senate hearing. <laughs> Someone just oh, had to really? list those off. <laughs> this isn't an official Senate hearing report, which I used for my source too. I forgot to put that in there, but I used like an official Senate hearing and also the official CIA like interrogation like manual. And yeah, it was in the Senate hearing. So before a meeting of people in our government, those names were read off. Uh, it was so funny. And, Reading through like the testimonies and the questioning, because they questioned uh, Admiral Turner, who was in the CIA, like head of one of the heads of the CIA at the time. You could just tell like some of the questioning. They're just like, "Are you sure this isn't happening anymore?" Like they were so upset and like suspicious. They're like, "We don't trust anything you guys say anymore." Because this whole time, you have to think about the CIA is operating on its own. They're not operating under the government right now. They're not telling the president. They're not telling anyone in Congress or the House. Like This is all just them on their own. So they're really taking a lot of liberties and doing this outside of any justification or any supervision, really. So yeah. it's well, kind, kind of insane. We'll probably get into it like discussing the aftermath of this but that's kind of one of the things that comes out of this is the congress is like we maybe need to have a little more of a say what is happening or at least some knowledge of what's going on in the cia yeah the cia had immense like it's i can't even begin like begin to explain how much power they had at this point in time like they could literally do whatever they wanted so the report states that someone getting interrogated would be fed these drugs and put into a sleep-like state so once they recovered consciousness enough to speak, they would be asked to confess to the charges brought against them and manipulated to talk about nothing else. So basically, they would be asked questions like leading questions while they're still in this like groggy, almost unconscious state. And if they got off topic and started talking about someone else, they would be kind of prodded and led back to what the original line of questioning was so that they would eventually just be like, yeah, you're right. So it was very manipulative. So someone confess while others would have these crazy fantasies. For example, one man claimed to have a child that didn't exist. Another threatened to kill his already dead stepfather. And another confessed to committing a robbery that he had obviously not committed. So the findings showed, in their opinion, that a normal person with strong mental capacity could stick to an invented cover story, while weaker mental participants would shift to confessions of a fantasy crime that they didn't commit. So basically, none of it worked at all. <laughs> One guy just like claimed to steal the Declaration of Independence and it turned out to be Nick Cage. Yeah, wow. <laughs> this guy made up this whole story about how he like robbed this place when they knew for a fact that he just went there to buy groceries. So wow, yeah, it it's just like these people are feeding them so many things that they're so out of it that they'd rather make up a story just to get out of this situation than to actually like stick to a truth story. 
So when these tests proved failures, Project Artichoke moved on to its next phase and transitioned into what it would ultimately become known for. The drugs began to shift to marijuana, cocaine, and even heroin. And one sub-project in particular was given a grant to test heroin on students at the University of Rochester. So someone in the project at the same time suggested mescaline, which is a psychedelic compound similar to LSD, instead of narcotics. And Gottlieb had a brain blast at this point and remembered hearing of the creation of a new drug called LSD discovered in Switzerland. So Sidney Gottlieb actually tested it himself, and after seeing how it altered his mind, he realized that that was going to be the breakthrough drug. That was going to be what he could use to break someone's mind. And in 1953, Gottlieb actually persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world's supply of LSD, and then they began to recreate it and pass it around to institutions who would experiment with it. Which, that's every time I hear that they bought the entire world's supply of LSD, it just blows my mind. Because now you think about it as like, oh, it's like a party drug or whatever, like you can get it from your buddy. But at the time, it was like just brand new, and there was only one place that knew how to make it. So it's not like he went all across the world and got it from everywhere. It was basically just this one place, but it still just blows my mind <laughs> that he got the entire world supply. It is wild that like Switzerland came up with this. Yeah. Like the the neutral Swiss, they just kind of Well, and it was by accident. Oh, really? Yeah. This um guy, Dr. Albert Hoffman was just like he was trying to find something I think for like blood circulation and oh. so I was like doing all this research and accidentally like created like he called it LSD 25. And it's the LSD we obviously know today. And he was like, well, this is great. Like, took it and had, like, a good trip. And then was like, cool, ran some more tests on it to see. And basically was like, yeah, this is kind of inconclusive. Like, some people have good trips, some people have bad trips. It has no effect, like, on your health or what he wanted to do. So he kind of moved on. But then Gottlieb is like, this is it. Like, <laughs> LSD is our, is, our, um, is our trick to mastering mind control. And, like... Since these people had technically invented it, they had the like IP for it. They had the inner intellectual property for it. And when he bought it, he was like, well, you guys have the IP. And they're like, we know what you're going to do with it. So we don't want it anymore. <laughs> so they basically just like gave up their rights to this invention because they didn't want to be associated with the CIA. That so, is fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's just insane that they like pretty much we're like upfront like saying we're going to use this for testing on humans like we don't want to be associated with that so good on them so now the race was on to figure out how to harness this drug for use in the field for mind control so these tests would be done on witting and unwitting citizens alike for instance an artist named stanley glickman was lured to a bar where his drink was dosed with lsd and it's important to say that these doses of LSD, when we think of LSD now, we think of like, oh, you take a tab of LSD and you just have like a mild trip or whatever. But these people were getting dosed with multiple times the normal dosage of LSD. So they were having just balls to the wall, like <laughs> psychedelic experiences. But basically they were roofied. Oh, Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. So. So. After being dosed, uh, unaware that he was dosed, he had a panic attack and fled the bar, and he remained in his Paris apartment for 10 months, hiding and paranoid, and he was only eventually pried out of his apartment by his family. And this wasn't even the worst of the situations, because 
those would all those, and those would all happen outside the country and like this happened in Paris but all of the worst ones would happen outside the country because then Gottlieb had literally no jurisdiction to follow because he's not within the national boundary so yeah they originally were using um I think it was Camp King and Villa Schuster were set up in Germany and they were testing this on prisoners and whatnot and I'm sure you'll get into that but it was very much like they were like out of sight of the U.S., like out of mind type deal. Yeah, oof. <laughs> Big oof. Yeah, I hate to hear the word camp whenever yeah. uh, that, that's involved. That's yeah. tough. So Stephen Kinzer told us a story about a chalet in Germany that was believed to be one of the CIA's secret prisons. So CIA, CIA doctors, alongside Nazi doctors, would experiment on people here and would kill a good amount of their test subjects. And these people who were experimented on to death would just be taken out into the nearby forest and buried and where they were buried is now where shopping malls and different businesses are. Yeah, so, one of the stories I read was this um, agent saw like a body being pulled out of the pool. And so they were like, they buried them in the forest eventually, but the bodies didn't always end up there to start with, which is just like... Ugh. Well, and you wonder if that guy was just like on a, like having a bad trip and just ended up in the pool and just drowned because yeah. he oh, couldn't, sure. couldn't figure out what he, where he was or what was happening. So similarly, there is a story about four Japanese who are suspected of being spies for the Russians, who were subsequently fed depressants and stimulants by CIA doctors and eventually confessed after relentless interrogation. So after this confession, these people were taken out to the Tokyo Bay and shot. And it was said in one of the articles that a lot of times when these things would happen, Gottlieb himself would personally be involved so it's not like he's just like telling other people and then staying in the country and letting them do their thing. He's actually going out and like overseeing a lot of this stuff. So it's very much just a sinister person that mm -hmm. he's become in this short period of time. But it's also Gottlieb and um, Stephen Kinzer described him as a puzzling figure because he he is. Like, yeah, he is. He was born with club feet. And had a stutter. And so, you know, for all, like, he's kind of viewed as the underdog all his life. And then he gets recruited by the CIA to come take control of this project. And he, like, really embraces it. But at the same time, lives in a cabin in the middle of the woods with his wife and their four kids. There's no running water. There's no, like, anything. He has goats. He milks goats. Like, like, this guy is and he like, loved dance. Yeah, like, like he loved folk dance. Like he's like <laughs> he's such a he's an he's, very interesting guy. That is so weird. He's like the and also can I just say I know <laughs> I told this to Jacob the other day, but I was like, you know what? Like Gottlieb, like a good looking guy. Yeah. Like <laughs> he's a pretty handsome dude. Like look him up. I was like ob objectively good looking. All right, this is gonna be our first. Our first, Our first this, live Google. Yeah, <laughs> this is the debut of baddies in history. <laughs> this, is how, this is how Facebook started. I don't know if we're going down the right path. <laughs> yeah. But just like, like, it's just fascinating because he is, if you, I feel like if you were his neighbor or a family friend, you'd be like, Gottlieb's great. He, yeah. I don't know what he does for a living, but he's like this awesome person. And he wanted to, after he retired, he like went to go help like, a village of lepers like he does all this great stuff and then at the yeah and, and, he was, the, and he was so smart too like he actually invented a lot of really useful things like after all of this was done yeah but i just i think this just goes to show especially how crazy everyone went during this how collectively crazy the country went yeah because 
not only is he part of this whole time period during the Cold War where everyone's got this Red Scare hysteria, but he's also the higher up in an organization that's supposed to be the ones tasked with stopping everything. Mm-hmm. So you got to imagine how much pressure he's personally under compared to everyone else at the same time. So, I mean, sometimes that just breaks a man down, I guess. I mean, yeah. it's not an excuse, obviously, but it's just like, well, I don't know. There's got to be some reason why he just kind of snapped for a little bit. <laughs> I think there's also this sense of patriotism. Yeah. Because he couldn't serve because of his club feet. He couldn't serve in World War II. And so he wants to do something. And so when the government gives him this chance, him, like Ira Baldwin, was the same case, was like, oh, I have to serve my country. I'm going to do that. And so it's a moment to prove yourself. Yeah. So. And especially for him. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's just, he's a fascinating individual. Evan, what's the consensus? Yeah. Good looking. I right? see it. <laughs> <laughs> that jawline, wow. <laughs> Handsome guy. And that has been Baddies of History brought to you by the <laughs> of History podcast. Put that on your Instagram. Right, yeah. Like and subscribe. (laughs) So once the CIA had control of as much LSD as they could ever need due to a U.S. pharmaceutical company, Ellie Lilly, now making, or Eli Lilly, sorry, making it stateside, they turned their focus on how to more effectively use it in testing. So more doctors were brought on, new apartments were outfitted for monitoring, and prison programs were set up. And a professional magician was even hired named John Mulholland I love this. to teach Gottlieb and fellow agents how to best administer LSD into drinks and food without being detected. And <laughs> every time I read that, I just think of like the classic like party magician where he's wearing like a top hat and a suit coat with coattails mm. and he's got like a magic wand. Just You that's... don't see him enter the room. It comes in a poof. Yeah. He's, like, Here. he's just like, ha ha, LSD. Yeah. He just like, throws LSD in people's faces. Yeah. What a great show. Yeah. Uh, they also studied the writings of a psychologist who worked with Hitler and was looking into the occult and what was called black psychiatry. So I believe that's probably something to do with witchcraft or something, but they didn't really explain what that was. So, but... At one location in Greenwich Village in New York, the CIA set up an apartment where they would deal with quote-unquote expendables, which former cop George White referred to as, quote, the whores, the pimps, and the people who brought in the drugs, end quote. Yeah, and this guy is a whole, like, he's a nut job. Yeah. And, yeah. He was just an an ex-cop alcoholic who somehow got referenced to this project (laughs) yeah well because they viewed him as um i think you said earlier like feet on the ground like he knew his way around these people i think he associated with them because of his prior work but also he seems the type to probably have hired a prostitute or two in his time and so everyone in the cia at this point they're coming from like rich families ivy leagues very like just upper class they don't Mm. know this stuff and so they turn to him and they're like you can help us out and he does i love like his quote the people who brought in the drugs as we just bought the entire world <laughs> literally of lsd and the cia would then later be used to bring in the drugs right for what we're now dealing with so these expendables would be thoroughly tested on at this new york location many of them suffering nervous breakdowns and some of them even dying but at the same, or as the name suggests, these people weren't important to keep alive as long as the tests yielded results, which is a recurring theme. Yeah. All of these people who are unwittingly getting tested is, if they die, they die. 
Yeah. Oh, and one girl gets drugged, goes to the hospital. She's like, I think I was drugged. And the hospital had some sort of agreement with the CIA. And they're like, nah, you're fine. And discharged her. And meanwhile, she's like, no, no, something happened. And Mm -hmm. that's also a common thing that still happens to this day. Women are ignored. (laughs) Think about the paranoia that causes, though. Yeah. Knowing that you were dosed with something, not knowing who did it or when it happened, and then being told that you weren't. Right. I can't imagine having to deal with that for my yeah. like the rest of my life, especially if I was dosed like very heavily with a drug that I'm probably not supposed to have unless I'm like consciously doing it. So yeah, well, and Gottlieb too when he first started, because he took LSD himself to test it out, and then he gives it to some of his colleagues, and some of them are like, "Yeah, let me know when you're going to give it to me," and some of them were like, "Surprise me!" <laughs> <laughs> so like that. Okay, you you expect something's going to happen. You just don't know when. Right. But then they started doing it on like agency trainees would come in and they're like drugged. And so like it just blows my mind because I can't imagine how scary that must have been to all of a sudden just be like, I'm tripping balls and I don't know why. Well, especially for a trainee, like you just got hired. Now your boss is like trying to get you in a meeting and you're just all you're in outer space. Like, yeah. I can't imagine having to deal with that. Yeah. It's it's hazing too. Like, yeah. You wonder like they had to have been standing there too and just laughing and been like, That guy's off the wall. <laughs> Can you it's like, kicking in. <laughs> yeah, that's the hazing ritual, just tripping on LSD. Like we ice people. Yeah. Noah Smirnoff ices. We make but... people run around the campus naked, like <laughs> <laughs> don't drug people. <laughs> So alongside these tests was another bizarre project with one of the best operation names that we get during this, Operation Midnight Climax. (laughs) (laughs) So in this operation, Gottlieb hired sex workers from San Francisco to bring men back to a set of... I didn't appreciate this name (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm trying to like not just spend a ton of time on it, but it's just... (laughs) But you know, and I said this in my notes, I was like, a bunch of dude bros at the CIA <laughs> were so proud of this name. Dude, we're talking about sex. Name it Climax. Right. Guys, guys, guys. <laughs> we're so funny. We're so clever. It's like, no, no. Can you tell this program was run by men? Yeah. <laughs> so during this project, Gottlieb hired sex workers from San Francisco to bring men back to a setup apartment where they would be unwittingly dosed with whatever drugs they were testing that week. It was not necessarily always LSD. And since these men couldn't really report that they were hiring sex workers, they couldn't really go complain to anyone. So it was a perfect subject. But alongside these set-up apartments, they were also testing on prisoners. Prison doctors would be given the drugs and then told to test them on prisoners since they couldn't really refuse. And one high-profile case of this was with Whitey Bulger, who is an infamous mafia boss. So him, along with over a dozen others, were given LSD almost every day for nearly 15 months. Can you imagine that? Just tripping constantly for a year and three months? No. I can't imagine like the come down after that. Yeah. It's like just not having it because I'm sure that has some addictive qualities, I'm guessing. I guess I don't know too much about the I don't drug think, itself. I but... don't think LSD really does. It's, it's okay. just like if, if you want to take it, cool. But like if you're giving it to someone and they don't know that they're taking it mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they start like hallucinating or start like hearing things that aren't there and you're stuck in a prison and you're already probably losing a little bit of your sense of self like that's gonna just destroy you like permanently right and i think he was told or that prison experiment experiment they were told it was to i'm pretty sure 
that they were looking for a cure for schizophrenia. Yep. So you also volunteer thinking that you're doing a good thing. Yep. And yeah. Psych. Yeah. <laughs> Joke's on you, yep. literally. <laughs> so as we just mentioned, the, the people administering it did not tell the prisoners what they were being given. And by the end, the inmates suffered nightmares, suicidal thoughts, and deep depressions. No surprise. And Whitey Bulger was quoted as saying, I was in prison for committing a crime, but they committed a greater crime on me. And he even said that he was going to find the doctor from Atlanta who was giving it to him, and he was going to go kill him himself. So he definitely held a grudge for good reason. Yeah, like Whitey was actually quoted, I saw... But just describing his experience on LSD, he said that guys were turning into skeletons right in front of me, and that he saw a camera change into the head of a dog. And like he felt like he was going insane. It's crazy. Yeah. And that's the same with those Edgewood experiments. Like, I think one guy said that he saw tiny people playing baseball on a desk while he was talking to one of his like superiors in a room. It's just like, I can not imagine having that vivid of a hallucination that I think this is actually happening while I'm in the room with my boss. <laughs> that's insane. That just an insane scenario. So remember Dr. Hebbs, who we talked about earlier? Well, his original sensory deprivation experiments influenced another man who was working at Allen Memorial, and that man's name was Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron. So he was a world-renowned psychiatrist, however, he would be a part of quite the controversy later in his career, and people would coin the terms for him such as, quote, ruthless, determined, aggressive, and domineering. So they said Dr. Cameron was seemingly unable to empathize with the people that he tested on, and all of his research was based on Gottlieb's propositions of a two-step mind control process. So the first step in this process was to, quote, correct the learned responses, end quote, that people had come to repeat throughout their lives. So in, an, in attempts to repattern the patient's brain, Cameron would subject them to electroshock twice a day, an upped dose from the normal three times a week, and this would break the incorrect pathways that resulted from poor mothering. He, that's what he thought. He said that they needed to be rendered back to a childlike state in their mind. Yeah, because a lot of his patients had postpartum depression or depression. So they just want like, they want to get back to their kids. Yeah. And um, one of the videos I watched, CBC News, so Canada, did a video on it of how um, this one woman, Jean Steele, was dealing with depression. She goes in, basically, like you said, electroshock, LSDs, kept in a coma, is eventually, mm -hmm. like, released from the um, psychiatric ward and just didn't talk, yep. like, ever again. And that was, like, that was one of the better cases because some of them had to be, like, couldn't tie their shoes again. Some of them had to learn how to use the bathroom again. And so his idea was to, like, de-pattern the mind, to re-pattern it, and all they did was just break people. It reminds me very much of when lobotomies became popular. Just yeah. Just these, like, absolutely shattering people. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yep. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that comes into play later. Yeah. <laughs> but can you imagine, like, you're already getting electroshock therapy done on you three times a week, and then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to do it 14 times a week now mm -hmm. instead. And now this was all at the Allen Memorial as well, yep. right? Yeah. And uh, I just saw in the video I I watched, they called the place, like the mansion, it was called like Ravenscraig, like 
that's just an intimidating name, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's, it's and, similar. To, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say the women's concentration camp um, in World War II was Ravensbrook, which is like very similar Ooh, to that. Did not so. know that. Mm-hmm. Don't like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> but the only other point, like during these tests and during these comas, like no visitors, it was a very strict no visitors allowed, like for one of my sources said for sure for three weeks. Yeah. And after that, a lot of people that saw their loved ones in this uh, mental hospital basically just they did not recognize like the test subjects essentially and i i think it was this experiments where like some of them went on for up to 77 days like Mm -hmm. just insane amounts of time that these people are being subjected to torture like terrible torture right Mm -hmm. one guy in the video i watched he said that he went in there because he had like phantom pains in his leg and they put him all through this like put him through the ringer and like he was, he said after I was done, I was giving a cortisone shot in my knee and then sent on my way. So there was just a clear, like logical fix for what he was going through, like with the cortisone shot. And then they were like, "No, you're gonna stay a little bit longer." It's just yeah. the amazing how much humanity goes out the window when these people start getting stuck on an idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think too. And I could be wrong about this, but I think Doctor Cameron had a better sense of what. Maybe he didn't know necessarily what MK Ultra was, but he knew the idea was for like mind control. Yeah. And not all of the institutions involved knew that. Yeah. They just were told, give them this drug. Let's see what happens. And that, that goes into, we'll probably talk about it a little later, but just how du- how, how the CIA duped all of these people pretty mm-hmm. much. So. so also to achieve this uh, repattering of the brain, Patients will be put into a prolonged sleep state through the use of various drugs, in addition to electroshock therapy, lasting for around 15 days. In the tougher cases, Cameron would use the sleep deprivation tactics that Dr. Hebbs had developed, but in extreme forms. And in a description from Cameron himself, he stated that in addition to a loss of all feeling, extreme cases would see a patient unable to walk without support, to to uh, see themselves, and... They may even show double incontinence. So it's just like these people are losing not only their entire identity, but also like physical ability to do certain things. Yeah. It's sad. And one of the ways that he kind of uses Heb's research is that he does the idea of like he puts a helmet on them and like pumps like repeated messages through speakers. And so they're losing their mind. Yeah. And one of the things that I read said that they repeated these like different recordings up to half a million times for some of these people so you're just like hearing the same thing over and over and over you can't he you can't see anything else you can't feel anything you can't smell anything like all you're basically just in a void hearing the same thing over and over and over and over it's just insane I mean, that's what I do with, like, whenever I, like, hear a new song that I really like on my Apple Music, but that only gets, like, <laughs> ten times in a row, not half a million. Right. And that process would be coined as what they called psychic driving. And that was their attempt to, after they had deprogrammed this person, to reprogram them with a certain initiative or thought process in mind. But, of course, never worked. So all of these people's lives were destroyed for nothing. And there's one failure in particular that 
plays a huge role in the entirety of MK Ultra, and that is the story of a man named Frank Olson. And that's what we'll get into on the next episode. What a transition. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's we're gonna that's what we'll stop for today. Uh, I think we gave you guys a, a pretty good overview of how bad this all is. Yeah. So take that and have fun with it. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. And then for New Year's, you'll get to hear about someone dying. Right. Merry Christmas. Your government's lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But quick plug of our social medias. You can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco. Mark at Mark underscore sign B, myself at Whatevskis. And then would you like to plug anything? I'm trying to think. I'm like, my Instagram is great. My Twitter, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sure, I could use more followers. So uh, my Twitter is Geronimo25. That's G I R A N A M O, then 25. And I think my Instagram is the same, but without the 25. So. Nice. There you go. Yeah. And then if you want to participate in our our sensory deprivation experiments, you can email us at gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We'll give you $3 for your participation. Mm -hmm. And, and we'll... free subscription. <laughs> <laughs> and you can listen to us for free every week. Mm -hmm. But no, if you actually want to get in contact, you can email us at the prior mentioned email address. If you want to uh, send us any topic suggestions, anything like that. We're always looking forward to hearing from you guys. And once again, go rate and review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you hear and subscribe and follow on all the other platforms, wherever you listen. So it really helps us out. But thank you guys for listening. And we will return next week with the continuation of Project MK Ultra. <laughs>